The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 12 A mile or so away through the wood, Arthur Dent was too busily engrossed with what he was doing to hear Ford Prefect approach. What he was doing was rather curious, and this is what it was. On a flat, wide piece of rock, he had scratched out the shape of a large square, subdivided into 169 smaller squares, 13 to a side. Furthermore, he had collected together a pile of smallish, flattish stones and scratched the shape of a letter onto each of them. Sitting morosely around the rock were a couple of the surviving local native men to whom Arthur Dent was trying to introduce the curious concept embodied in these stones. So far, they had not done well. They had attempted to eat some of them, bury others, and throw the rest of them away. Arthur had finally encouraged one of them to lay a couple of stones on the board he'd scratched out, which was not even as far as he'd imagined he'd get the day before. Along with the rapid deterioration in the morale of these creatures, there seemed to be a corresponding deterioration in their actual intelligence. In an attempt to egg them along, Arthur set out a number of letters on the board himself, and then tried to encourage the natives to add some more themselves. It was not going well. Ford watched quietly from beside a nearby tree. No, said Arthur to one of the natives, who just shuffled some of the letters round in a fit of abysmal dejection. Q scores ten, you see, and it's on a triple word score, so... Look, I've explained the rules to you. No, 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 look, please, put down that jawbone. All right, all right, we'll start again, and try to concentrate this time. Ford leaned his elbow against the tree, and his hand against his head. What are you doing, Arthur? he asked quietly. Arthur looked up with a start. He suddenly had a feeling that all this might look slightly foolish. All he knew was that it had worked like a dream on him when he was a child. But things were different then, or, or rather would be different. I'm trying to teach the cavemen to play Scrabble, he said. They're not cavemen, said Ford. They look like cavemen. Ford let it pass. I see, he said. It's uphill work, said Arthur wearily. The only word they know is grunt, and they can't spell it. He sighed and sat back. What's that supposed to achieve? asked Ford. We've got to encourage them to evolve, to develop, Arthur burst out angrily. He hoped that the weary sigh and then the anger might do something to counteract the overriding feeling of foolishness from which he was currently suffering. It didn't. He jumped to his feet. Can you imagine what a world would be like descended from those cretins we arrived with, he said. Imagine, said Ford, raising his eyebrows. We don't have to imagine. We've seen it. But, Arthur waved his arms about hopelessly. We've seen it, said Ford. There's no escape. Arthur kicked at a stone. Did you tell them what we discovered? he asked. Hmm? said Ford, not really concentrating. 
Norway, said Arthur. Slarty Bartfast, signature in the glacier. Did you tell them? What's the point? said Ford. What would it mean to them? Mean, said Arthur. Mean, you know perfectly well what it means. It means that this is the planet Earth. It's my home. It's where I was born. Was, said Ford. All right, will be. Yes, in two million years' time. Tell you what, why don't you go and tell them that? Go and say to them, excuse me, I'd just like to point out that in two million years' time, I will be born just a few miles from here. See what they say. They'll chase you up a tree and set fire to it. Arthur absorbed this unhappily. Face it, said Ford. Those Zebes over there are your ancestors, not these poor creatures here. He went over to where the ape-men creatures were rummaging listlessly with the stone letters. He shook his head. Put the scrabble away, Arthur, he said. It won't save the human race, because this lot aren't going to be the human race. The human race is currently sitting around a rock on the other side of this hill making documentaries about themselves. Arthur winced. There must be something we can do, he said. A terrible sense of desolation thrilled through his body that he should be here on the earth, the earth which had lost its future in a horrifying arbitrary catastrophe and which he now needs... Ah, oh, sorry, let's try that again, shall we? There must be something we can do, he said. A terrible sense of desolation thrilled through his body that he, that, that he should be here on the earth, the earth which had lost its future in a horrifying arbitrary catastrophe and which now seemed set to lose its past as well. No, said Ford, there's nothing we can do. This doesn't change the history of the earth, you see, this is the history of the earth. Like it or leave it, the Golgofrinchians are the people you are descended from. In two million years they get destroyed by the Vogons. History is never altered, you see. It just fits together like a jigsaw. Funny old thing, life, isn't it? He picked up the letter Q and hurled it into a distant privet bush where it hit a young rabbit. The rabbit hurtled off in terror and didn't stop until it was set upon and eaten by a fox, which choked on one of its bones and died on the bank of a stream, which subsequently washed it away. During the following weeks, Ford Prefect swallowed his pride and struck up a relationship with a girl who'd been a personnel officer on Golga Frinchen. And he was terribly upset when she suddenly passed away as a result of drinking water from a pool that had been polluted by the body of a dead fox. The only moral it is possible to draw from this story is that one should never throw the letter Q into a privet bush. But unfortunately, there are times when it's unavoidable. Like most of the really crucial things in life, this chain of events was completely invisible to Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent. They were looking sadly at one of the natives, morosely pushing the other letters around. Poor bloody caveman, said Arthur. They're not. What? Oh, never mind, said Ford. The wretched creature let out a pathetic, howling noise and banged on the rock. It's all been a bit of a waste of time for them, hasn't it? said Arthur. <coughs> muttered the native and banged on the rock again. They've been out-evolved by telephone sanitizers. <coughs> insisted the native, continuing to bang on the rock. Why, did, why, did, why does he keep banging on the rock? said Arthur. I think he probably wants you to scrabble with him again, said Ford. He's pointing to the letters. Probably spelt Krzgijewilidzikwudzki again, poor bastard. I keep on telling him there's only one G in Krzgijewilidzikwudzki. The native banged on the rock again, 
They looked over his shoulder. Their eyes popped. There, amongst the jumble of letters, were eight that had been laid out in a clear, straight line. They spelt two words. The words were these. Forty-two. Explained the native. He swept the letters angrily away and went and mooched under a nearby tree with his colleague. Ford and Arthur stared at him. Then they stared at each other. Uh, did that say what I thought it said? They both said to each other. Yes, they both said. Forty-two, said Arthur. Forty-two, said Ford. Arthur ran over to the two natives. What are you trying to what are you trying to tell us? he shouted. What's it supposed to mean? One of them rolled over on the ground, kicked his legs up in the air, rolled over again, and went promptly to sleep. The other bounded up the tree and threw horse chestnuts at Ford Prefect. Whatever it was they had to say, they had already said it. You know what this means, said Ford. Not entirely, said Arthur. Forty-two is the number deep thought gave as being the ultimate answer. Yes. And the earth is the computer deep thought designed to build, to build and built to calculate the question to the ultimate answer. So we're led to believe. And organic life was part of the computer matrix. If you say so. I do say so. That means that these natives, these ape men, are an integral part of the computer program, and that we and the Golgofrinchians are not. But the cavemen are dying out, and the Golgofrinchians are obviously set to replace them. Exactly. So do you see what this means? What? Cock up, said Ford Prefect. Arthur looked around him. This planet is having a pretty bloody time of it, he said. Ford puzzled for a moment. Still, something must have come of it, he said at last, because Marvin said he could see the question printed in your brainwave patterns. But probably the wrong one. Or a distortion of the right one. It might give us a clue, though, if we could find it. I don't... I don't see how we can, though. They moped about for a bit. Arthur sat on the ground and started pulling up bits of grass, but found that it wasn't an occupation he could get really deeply engrossed in. It wasn't grass he could believe in. The trees seemed pointless, the rolling hills seemed to be rolling to nowhere, and the future seemed just a tunnel to be crawled through. Ford fiddled with his sub-ether sensomatic. It was silent. He sighed and put it away. Arthur picked up one of the letter stones from his homemade Scrabble set. It was a T. He sighed and put it down again. The next letter he put it down, or the letter he put it down next to, was an I. That spelt it. He tossed another couple of letters next to them. They were an S and an H, as it happened. By a curious coincidence, the resulting word perfectly expressed the way Arthur was feeling about things just at that time. He stared at it for a moment. He hadn't done it deliberately. It was just a random chance. His brain got slowly into first gear. Ford, he said suddenly, look, if that question is printed in my brainwave patterns, and I'm not consciously aware of it, it must be somewhere in my unconscious. Yes, I suppose so. There might be a way of bringing that unconscious pattern forward.
Oh, yes? Yeah, by introducing some random element that could be shaped by that pattern. Like how? Like by pulling Scrabble letters out of a bag blindfold. Ford leapt to his feet. Brilliant, he said. He tugged his towel out of his satchel and with a few deft knots transformed it into a bag. Totally mad, he said, utter nonsense. But we'll do it because it's brilliant nonsense. Come on, come on. The sun passed respectfully behind a cloud. A few small, sad raindrops fell. They piled together all the remaining letters and dropped them into the bag. They shook them up. Right, said Ford, close your eyes. Pull them out. Come on, come on, come on. Arthur closed his eyes and plunged his hand into the towelful of stones. He jiggled them about, pulled out four, and handed them to Ford. Ford laid them along the ground in the order he got them. W, said Ford, H, A, T. What? He blinked. I think it's working, he said. Arthur pushed three more at him. D, O, Y, doy, doy, ah, oh, perhaps it isn't working, said Ford. Here's the next three. O-U-G, doyug. Uh, it's not making sense, I'm afraid. Arthur pulled another two from the bag, and Ford put them in place. E-T, doyuget, doyug, do you, do you get? shouted for it is working this is amazing it really is working more here arthur was throwing them out feverishly as fast as he could go i f said ford y o u m u l t i p l y what do you get if you multiply S I X six B Y by six by what do you get if you multiply six by N I N E six by nine He paused. Come on, where's the next one? Uh that's the lot said Arthur. That's all there were. He sat back nonplussed. He rooted around in the knotted-up towel, but there were no more letters. You mean that's it? said Ford. That's it. Six by nine. Forty-two. That's it. That's all there is. The sun came out and beamed cheerfully at them. A bird sang. A warm breeze wafted through the trees and lifted the heads of the flowers, carrying their scent away through the woods. An insect droned past on its way to do whatever it is that insects do in the late afternoon. The sound of voices lilted through the trees, followed a moment later by two girls, who stopped in surprise at the sight of Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent apparently lying on the ground in agony, but in fact rocking with noiseless laughter. No, 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 don't go, called Ford Prefect between gasps. We'll be with you in just a moment. What's the matter? asked one of the girls. She was the taller and slimmer of the two. On Golga Frinchen, she had been a junior personnel officer, but hadn't liked it much. Ford pulled himself together. Oh, <coughs> excuse me, he said. Hello, my friend and I were just contemplating the meaning of life. Frivolous exercise. Oh, it's you, said the girl. 
You made a bit of a spectacle of yourself this afternoon. You were quite funny to begin with, but you did bang on a bit. Did I? Oh, yes. Yes, what was all that for? asked the other girl, a shorter, round-faced girl who'd been an art director for a small advertising company on Golga Frinchen. Whatever the privations of this world were, she went to sleep every night, profoundly grateful for the fact that whatever she had to face in the morning, it wouldn't be a hundred almost identical photographs of moodily lit tubes of toothpaste. For? For nothing. Nothing's for anything, said Ford Prefect happily. Come and join us. I'm Ford, and this is Arthur. We were just about to do nothing at all for a while. But that can wait. Oh, hold on a second. As can this. <laughs> that counts as being a bit too noisy, I guess, doesn't it? I hope nobody's heard. I hate the sound about the sirens, actually. Anyway, right. Get that back open so I can breathe. Right, sorry about that. So, where were we? Yes, we were just about to do nothing for at all, uh, nothing at all for a while, but that can wait. The girls looked at them both doubtfully. I'm Agda, said the tall one. This is Mella. Hello, Agda. Hello, Mella, said Ford. Do you talk at all? said Mella to Arthur. Oh, eventually, said Arthur with a smile, but not as much as Ford. Good. There was a slight pause. What did you mean, asked Agda, about only having two million years? I couldn't make sense of what you were saying. Oh, <laughs> that, said Ford, doesn't matter. It's just that the world gets demolished to make way for a hyperspace bypass, said Arthur, with a shrug. But that's two million years away. Anyway, it's just Vogons doing what Vogons do. Vogons? said Mella. Yes, you, you wouldn't know them. Where'd you get this idea from? It really doesn't matter. It's just like a dream from the past. Or the future. Arthur smiled and looked away. Does it worry you at all that you don't talk any kind of sense? Asked Agda. Listen, forget it, said Ford. Forget all of it. Nothing matters. Look, it's a beautiful day. Enjoy it. The sun, the green of the hills, the river down in the valley, the burning trees. Even if it's only a dream, it's, it's a pretty horrible idea, said Mella, destroying a world just to make a bypass. Oh, I've heard worse, said Ford. I read of one planet off in the seventh dimension that got used as a ball in a game of intergalactic bar billiards got potted straight into a black hole, killed ten billion people. That's mad, said Mella. Yeah, only scored thirty-two points too. Agda and Mella exchanged glasses, uh, glasses, glances. Look, said Agda, there's a party after the committee meeting tonight. You can come along if you'd like. Yeah. OK, said Ford. I'd like to, said Arthur. Many hours later, Arthur and Mella sat and watched the moon rise over the dull red glow of the trees. That story about the world being destroyed, began Mella. In two million years? Yes. You say, well, you say it as if you really think that it's true. Yes, I think it is. I think I was there. She shook her head in puzzlement. You're very strange, 
she said. No, I'm very ordinary, said Arthur. But some very strange things have happened to me. You could say I'm more differed from than differing. In that other world, the other world your friend talked about, the one that got pushed into a black hole, ah, that I don't know about. It sounds like something from the book. What book? Arthur paused. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he said at last. What's that? Oh, just something I threw into the river this evening. I don't think I'll be wanting it any more, said Arthur Dent. Now, as we are doing the uh, special uh, 42nd anniversary editions of these books, um, I have been including the forewords that are done when I start each of the books. The first one we um, was with the lately, late lamented Terry Jones, who passed away, I think it was last year, um, uh, possibly earlier this year. Uh, and then this one is by Simon Brett. This is the foreword to Life, the Universe and Everything. Um, and it's Simon Brett, who was the producer of the Radio 4 pilot episode, the very, very first Radio 4, the first uh, um, ever uh, encounter with the world of, of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, and uh, Douglas Adams' genius. So I'll read that as well, and then we'll crack on into the book. So the foreword to Life, the Universe and Everything by Simon Brett. I am unique in the history of the world, and indeed of the entire universe. I am the only person who ever got a manuscript from Douglas Adams on time. The reason for this rare distinction is that I was the BBC producer who commissioned the first radio script for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and since the pilot episode could not be recorded until we had some words to record, Douglas duly delivered on time. Thereafter, of course, his propensity towards procrastination and missed deadlines became legendary. I had first met Douglas with a bunch of other Cambridge Review writers and performers, including John Lloyd, Griff Rhys-Jones and Mary Allen. He had contributed a few surreal sketches, including a classic about an unsuccessful kamikaze pilot, to a Cambridge Footlights review, to which a group of young Radio Light entertainment producers, including me, had paid a visit. I subsequently produced a radio version of that stage show. So, I saw a lot of Douglas around the BBC. I was aware of his comedy potential, but also of his huge frustration that he couldn't find a niche for his unusual talents. Most radio comedy around that time was very stratified. Sketches were carefully structured with beginnings, middles and punchlines, and formats like that didn't suit the sprawling, insatiable intellectual curiosity of Douglas's mind. I was also then producing the topical comedy programme, Week Ending, and tried to get him to contribute to that. Never had there been a greater mismatch between programme and writer. A brain like Douglas's is singularly incapable of, of writing wacky 30-second quickies about Margaret Thatcher. Some of his material did appear in The Burkis Way, another show I was producing, and that was closer to the Adams style. But the show's main writers, David Rennick and Andrew Marshall, both subsequently to have stellar careers in television comedy, were developing the programme in a way which left little room for outside contributions. I still thought there was untapped potential in Douglas Adams, and so I asked him to come up with some ideas for a show of his own. On Friday the 18th of February 1977, we met for lunch in a Japanese restaurant, where he presented me with three ideas. I said that I thought the most promising was the science fiction comedy which he'd entitled The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and that I would like to try and persuade my bosses in the light entertainment department to commission a pilot script. The rest, as they say, is history. And incidentally, neither Douglas nor I could ever remember what the two ideas we rejected were. 
So, on Tuesday, the 27th of June, 1977, in the Paris studio in Lower Regent Street, we recorded the pilot script of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was to be the first and last episode that I produced. Not that I wouldn't have wanted to continue, but I had recently agreed to take on a new job at London Weekend Television, and the ensuing series couldn't have been in better hands than those of the person I recommended should take over from me, Geoffrey Perkins, a brilliant comedy producer, whose death, like Douglas's own, came far too early. On the 12th of July, I played back the edited recording of the pilot to my immediate bosses. The three of them sat in stony silence for the full half hour. At the end of the playback, the head of Light Entertainment, Con Mahoney, recognising that what he had just heard was rather different from the department's usual output, asked me, Simon, is it funny? I assured him it was. And from that moment, he gave the project his full support. Of course, it was from that pilot script that The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy developed into an international publishing sensation. The trilogy of five, of which Life, the Universe and Everything is Volume 3. In this book, you will find all of the trademarks of Douglas Adams' writing, of which probably the most striking is his sheer glee in the potentialities of the English language. Oh, hell yes! Sorry, that was my personal aside. Sometimes the effects are very simple, as when he says of the party spaceship, it tried to right itself and wronged itself instead. Other images are more complex, but always note-perfect. Here's a description of the Norse god Thor. He expanded his chest to make it totally clear that here was the sort of man you only dared to cross if you had a team of Sherpas with you. Then there are the words Douglas makes up. In a characteristic scene where a mattress engages in a conversation with Marvin the paranoid android, we encounter flololoped, globbered, and volued, none of which would have been out of place in Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky. I think Douglas's was the most original mind I've ever encountered. He had a unique ability to make connections between disparate ideas. In the world of Hitchhiker, it appears quite logical that a drinks party should hurtle endlessly through space, or that a new mathematical system should be based on people's behaviour in restaurants. Life, the universe and everything is the book in which Douglas gets closest to actually having a plot. But as he would readily admit, he wasn't really good at plots and it isn't a very good plot. That couldn't matter less, though. You don't read Douglas Adams for his plots any more than you read Raymond Chandler for his. You read both authors for their language and the imaginative world that they create. So, enjoy this book. The writing process for Douglas was an agonisingly slow one but the results were always worth waiting for. And life, the universe, and everything has another rare distinction. It's one of the very few books featuring cricket ever to have been a success in the United States of America. Simon Brett, producer of the Radio 4 pilot episode, of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank goodness he produced it, and thank goodness he said it was funny. Right. Life, the universe, and everything. The regular early morning yell of horror was the sound of Arthur Dent waking up and suddenly remembering where he was. It wasn't just that the cave was cold. It wasn't just that it was damp and smelly. It was the fact that the cave was in the middle of Islington, and there wasn't a bus due 
for two million years. Time is the worst place, so to speak, to get lost in, as Arthur Dent could testify, having been lost in both time and space a good deal. At least, being lost in space kept you busy. He was stranded in prehistoric Earth as the result of a complex sequence of events which had involved him being alternately blown up and insulted in more bizarre regions of the galaxy than he had ever dreamed existed. And though life had now turned very, very, very quiet, he was still feeling jumpy. He hadn't been blown up now for five years. Since he, ha since, he, <clears throat> since he had hardly seen anyone since he and Ford Prefect had parted company four years previously, he hadn't been insulted in all that time either. Except just once. It had happened on a spring evening about two years previously. He was returning to his cave just a little after dusk when he, was, when he became aware of lights flashing eerily through the clouds. He turned and stared with hope suddenly clambering through his heart. Rescue! Escape! The castaway's impossible dream! A ship! As he watched, he stared in wonder and, in, and excitement as a long silver ship descended through the warm evening air, quietly without fuss, its long legs unlocking in a smooth ballet of technology. It alighted gently on the ground, and what little hum it had generated died away, as if lulled by the evening calm. A ramp extended itself. Light streamed out. A tall figure appeared silhouetted in the hatchway. It walked down the ramp and stood in front of Arthur. You're a jerk, Dent it said simply. It was an alien, very alien. It had a peculiar alien tallness, a peculiar alien flattened head, peculiar slitty alien eyes, extravagantly draped golden robes with a peculiarly alien collar design, and pale grey-green alien skin which had it about it that lustrous sheen for which most grey-green faces can only acquire with plenty of exercise and very expensive soap. Arthur boggled at it. It gazed levelly at him. Arthur's first sensations of hope and trepidation had instantly been overwhelmed by astonishment, and all sorts of thoughts were battling for the use of his vocal cords at this precise moment. Huh? he said. Buh, he added. Who? He finally managed to say, and lapsed into a frantic kind of silence. He was feeling the effects of not having said anything to anyone for about as long as he could remember. The alien creature frowned briefly, and consulted what appeared to be some species of clipboard which he was holding in his thin and spindly alien hand. Arthur Dent, it said. Arthur nodded helplessly. Arthur Philip Dent, pursued the alien in a kind of efficient yap. Uh, uh, y yes, uh, uh, confirmed Arthur. You're a jerk, repeated the alien. A complete arsehole. Huh? The creature nodded to itself, made a peculiar alien tick on its clipboard, and turned briskly back towards its ship. Uh, uh, said Arthur desperately. Don't give me that, snapped the alien. It marched up the ramp, through the hatchway, and disappeared into its ship. The ship sealed itself. It started to make a low, throbbing hum. Uh, hey! shouted Arthur, and started to run helplessly toward it. Wait, wait a minute, he called. What is, what is this? What? Wait, what? Wait a minute. The ship rose as if shedding its weight like a cloak to the ground. It hovered briefly. 
it swept strangely up into the evening sky. It passed up through the clouds, illuminating them briefly, and then was gone, leaving Arthur alone in an immensity of land, dancing a helplessly tiny little dance. What? he screamed. What? Wait, what? Come back in here and say that! He jumped and danced until his legs trembled and shouted until his lungs rasped. There was no answer from anyone. There was no one to hear him or to speak to him. The alien ship was already thundering towards the upper reaches of the atmosphere, on its way out into the appalling void which separates the very few things there are in the universe from each other. Its occupant, the alien, with the expensive complexion, leaned back in its single seat. His name was Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged. He was a man with a purpose. Not a very good purpose, as he would have been the first to admit, but it was at least a purpose, and it did at least keep him on the move. Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged was, indeed is, one of the universe's very small number of immortal beings. Those who are born immortal instinctively know how to cope with it, but Wowbagger was not one of them. Indeed, he had come to hate them, the load of serene bastards. He had had his immortality inadvertently thrust upon him by an unfortunate accident with an irrational particle accelerator, a liquid lunch, and a pair of rubber bands. The precise details of the accident are not important because no one has ever managed to duplicate the exact circumstances under which it happened, and many people have ended up looking very silly, or dead, or both, trying. Wowbagger closed his eyes in a grim and weary expression, put some light jazz onto the ship's stereo, and reflected that he could have made it if it hadn't been for Sunday afternoons. He really could have done. To begin with, it was fun. He had a ball, living dangerously, taking risks, cleaning up on high-yield, long-term investments, and just generally outliving the hell out of everybody. In the end, it was the Sunday afternoons he couldn't cope with and that terrible listlessness which starts to set in around 2.55, when you know that you've had all the baths you can usefully have that day, that however hard you stare at any given paragraph in the papers, you will never actually read it, or use the revolutionary new pruning technique it describes, and that as you stare at the clock, the hands will move relentlessly on to four o'clock, and you will enter the long, dark tea-time of the soul. So, things began to pall for him. The merry smiles he used to wear at other people's funerals began to fade. He began to despise the universe in general, and everybody in it in particular. This was the point at which he conceived his purpose. The thing that which would drive him on, and which, as far as he could see, would drive him on forever. It was this. He would insult the universe. That is, he would insult everybody in it. Individually, personally, one by one, and, this was the thing he really decided to grit his teeth over, in alphabetical order. When people protested to him, as sometimes they do, sorry, uh, blah, 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 blah. when people protested to him, as sometimes they had done, that the plan was not merely misguided, but actually impossible because of the number of people being 
uh, being oh, sorry, the number of people being born and dying all the time, he would merely fix them with a steely look and say, "A man can dream, can't he?" And so he had started out. He equipped a spaceship that was built to last with a computer capable of handling all the data processing involved in keeping track of the entire population of the known universe and working out the horrifically complicated routes involved. His ship fled through the inner orbits of the Sol solar system, preparing to slingshot around the sun and fling itself out into interstellar space. Computer, he said. Here, yipped the computer. Where next? Computing that. Wow Bagger gazed for a moment at the fantastic jewellery of the night, the billions of tiny diamond worlds that dusted the infinite darkness with light. Every one, every single one, was on his itinerary. Most of them he would be going to millions of times over. He imagined for a moment his itinerary connecting up all the dots in the sky like a child's numbered dots puzzle. He hoped that from some vantage point in the universe it might be seen to spell a very, 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 very rude word. The computer beeped tunelessly to indicate that it had finished its calculations. Falfanger, it beeped. Fourth word of the Falf, uh, fourth world of the Falfanger system, it continued, and it beeped again. Estimated journey time, three weeks, it continued further, and beeped again. There to meet with a small slug, it beeped, of the genus I believe, it added, after a slight pause during which it beeped, that you decided to call it a brainless prat. Wowbagger grunted. He watched the majesty of creation outside his, his window for a moment or two. I think I'll take a nap, he said, and then added, What network areas are we going to be passing through in the next few hours? The computer beeped. Cosmovid, ThinkPix, and Home Brain Box, it said, and beeped. Any movies I haven't seen 30,000 times already? No. Uh. There's angst in space. You've only seen that 33,517 times. Wake me for the second reel. The computer beeped. Sleep well it said. The ship fled on through the night. Meanwhile, on Earth, it began to pour with rain, and Arthur Dent sat in his cave and had one of the most truly rotten evenings of his entire life, thinking of things that he could have said to the alien, and swatting flies, who also had a rotten evening. The next day he made himself a pouch out of rabbit skin because he thought it would be useful to keep things in. This morning, two years later than that, was sweet and fragrant as he emerged from the cave he called home until he could think of a better name for it or find a better cave. Though his throat was sore again from his early morning yell of horror, he was suddenly in a terrifically good mood. He wrapped his dilapidated dressing gown tightly around him and beamed at the bright morning. The air was clear and scented. The breeze flitted lightly through the tall grass around his cave. The birds were chirruping at each other. The butterflies were flitting around prettily and the whole of nature seemed to be conspiring to be as pleasant and as and so to be as pleasant as it possibly could it wasn't all the pastoral delights that were making arthur feel so cheery though he had just had a wonderful idea about how to cope with the terrible lonely isolation the nightmares the failure of all his attempts at horticulture and the sheer futurelessness and futility of his life here on prehistoric earth which was that he would go mad. He beamed again and took a bite out of a rabbit leg left over from his supper. He chewed happily for a few moments and then decided formally 
to announce his decision. He stood up straight and looked the world squarely in the fields and hills. To add weight to his words, he stuck the rabbit bone in his hair. He spread his arms out wide. I will go mad, he announced. Good idea, said Ford Prefect, clambering down from the rock on which he'd been sitting. Arthur's brain somersaulted. His jaw did press-ups. I went mad for a while, said Ford. Did me no end of good. Arthur's eyes did cartwheels. You see, said Ford. Where have you been? interrupted Arthur, now that his head had finished its workout. Around, said Ford. Around and about. He grinned in what he accurately judged to be an infuriating manner. I just took my mind off the hook for a bit. I reckoned that if the world wanted me badly enough, it would call me back. It did. He took out his now terribly battered and dilapidated satchel and, and pulled out of it his sub-ether sensomatic. At least, he said, I think it did. This has been playing up a bit. He shook it. If it was a false alarm, I shall go mad, he said. Again. Arthur shook his head and sat down. He looked up. I, I thought you must be dead, he said simply. Well, so did I for a while, said Ford, and then I decided I was a lemon for a couple of weeks. I kept myself amused all that time by jumping in and out of a gin and tonic. Arthur cleared his throat and then did it again. Where, he said, where did you find a gin and tonic? said Ford brightly. I found a small lake that thought it was a gin and tonic and I jumped in and out of that. At least, I think it thought it was a gin and tonic. I may, he added with a grin, which would have sent sane men scampering into trees, have been imagining it all. He waited for a reaction from Arthur, but Arthur knew better than that. Carry on, he said evenly. The point is, you see, said Ford, that there is no point in driving yourself mad trying to stop yourself going mad. You might as well just give in and save your sanity for later. And this is you sane again, is it? said Arthur. I merely ask for information. I went to Africa, said Ford. Yes? Yes. What was that like? And this is your cave, is it? said Ford. Uh, yes, said Arthur. He felt very strange. After nearly four years of total isolation, he was so pleased and relieved to see, that f to see Ford that he could almost cry. Ford was, on the other hand, an almost immediately annoying person. Very nice, said Ford in reference to Arthur's cave. You must hate it. Arthur didn't bother to reply. Africa was very interesting, said Ford. I behaved very oddly there. He gazed thoughtfully into the distance. I took up being cruel to animals, he said airily, but only, he added, as a hobby. Oh, yes, said Arthur warily. Yes, said Ford, assuringly. I, I won't disturb you with the details, because they would... What? Disturb you. But you may be interested to know that I am single-handedly responsible for the evolved shape of the animal you came to know in later centuries as a giraffe. And I tried to learn to fly. Do you believe me? Tell me, said Arthur. I'll tell you later. I'll just mention that the guide says... The guide? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you remember? Yes, I, I remember throwing it into the river. Yes, said Ford, but I fished it out. You didn't tell me. I didn't want you to throw it in again. Fair enough, said Arthur. It says, what? 
the guide says. Oh, the guide says that there is an art to flying, said Ford, or rather a knack. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. He smiled weakly. He pointed at the knees of his trousers and held his arms up to show the elbows. They were all torn <clears throat> and worn through. I haven't done very well so far, he said. He stuck out his hand. I'm very glad to see you again, Arthur, he added. Arthur shook his head in a sudden access of emotion and bewilderment. I haven't seen anyone for years, he said. Not anyone. I can hardly even remember how to speak. I keep forgetting words. I practice, you see. I practice by talking to... Talking to... Oh, what are those things people think you're mad if you talk to them? Like George the Third. Kings? suggested Ford. No, 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 said Arthur. The, the things he used to talk to. Ah, oh, we're surrounded by them, for heaven's sake. I planted hundreds of the buggers myself. They all died. Trees! Trees! I practice by talking to trees. What's that for? Ford still had his hand stuck out. Arthur looked at it with incomprehension. Shake, prompted Ford. Arthur did, nervously at first, as if he might turn out to be a fish. Then he grasped it vigorously with both hands in an overwhelming flood of relief. He shook it and shook it. After a while, Ford found it necessary to disengage. They climbed to the top of a near, nearby outcrop of rock and surveyed the scene around them. What happened to the Golgofrinchans? asked Ford. Arthur shrugged. A lot of them didn't make it through the winter three years ago, he said, and the few who remained in the spring said they needed a holiday and set off on a raft. History says that they must have survived. Huh, said Ford. Well, well. He stuck his hands on his hips and looked around at the empty world. Suddenly, there was about Ford a sense of energy and purpose. We're going, he said excitedly, and then started to shiver with energy. Where? How? said Arthur. I don't know, said Ford, but I just feel that the time is right. Things are going to happen. We are on our way. He lowered his voice to a whisper. I have detected he said, disturbances in the wash. He gazed keenly into the distance and looked as if he would quite like the wind to blow his hair back dramatically at that point. But the wind was busy fooling around with some leaves a little way off. Arthur asked him to repeat what he had just said because he hadn't quite taken his meaning. Ford repeated it. The wash, said Arthur. The space-time wash, said Ford, as the wind blew briefly past at that moment. He bared his teeth into it. Arthur nodded and then <clears throat> cleared his throat. Are we talking about, he asked cautiously, some sort of Vogon laundromat? Or, or what are we talking about? Eddies, said Ford, in the space-time continuum. Ah, nodded Arthur. Is he? Is he? He pushed his hands into the pocket of his dressing gown and looked knowledgeably into the distance. What? said Ford. Uh, who? said Arthur. Is Eddie, then? Exactly, then. Ford looked angrily at him. Will you listen? He snapped. I have been listening, said Arthur. But I'm not sure it helped. Ford grasped him by the lapels of his dressing gown and spoke to him as slowly and distinctly and patiently as if he were somebody from a telephone company accounts department. 
There seem, he said, to be some pools, he said, of instability, he said, in the fabric, he said. Arthur looked foolishly at the cloth of his dressing gown where Ford was holding it. Ford swept on before Arthur could turn the foolish look into a foolish remark. In the fabric of space-time, he said. Ah, that, said Arthur. Yes, that. Confirmed Ford. Hold on, we'll let the dickhead on the tiny bike go past. Right. Yes, that, confirmed Ford. They stood there alone on a hill, on prehistoric earth, and stared each other resolutely in the face. And it's done what? said Arthur. It, said Ford, has developed pools of instability. Has it? said Arthur, his eyes not wavering for a moment. It has, said Ford, with a similar degree of ocular immobility. Good, said Arthur. See, said Ford. No, said Arthur. There was a quiet pause. The difficulty with this conversation, said Arthur, after a short sort of pondering look had crawled slowly across his face like a mountaineer negotiating a tricky outcrop is that it's very different from most of the ones I've had of late which, as I explained have mostly been with trees they weren't like this except perhaps one of the ones I've had with elms which sometimes get a bit bogged down Arthur, said Ford hello, yes, said Arthur just believe everything I tell you, and it will all be very, very simple. Ah, well, I'm not sure I believe that. They sat down and composed their thoughts. Ford got out his sub-ether sensomatic. It was making vague humming noises, and a tiny light on it was flickering faintly. Flat battery? said Arthur. No, said Ford. There is a moving disturbance in the fabric of space-time, an eddy, a pool of instability, and it's somewhere in our vicinity. Where? Ford moved the device in a slow, lightly bobbing semicircle. Suddenly, the light flashed. There, said Ford, shooting out his arm. There, behind that sofa. Arthur looked. Much to his surprise, there was a velvet paisley-covered Chesterfield sofa in the field in front of them. He boggled intelligently at it. Shrewd questions sprang into his mind. Why, he said, is there a sofa in that field? I told you, shouted Ford, leaping to his feet, Eddie's in the space-time continuum. And this is his sofa, is it? asked Arthur, struggling to his feet, and he hoped, though not very optimistically, to his senses. Arthur! shouted Ford at him. That sofa is there because of the space-time instability I've been trying to get your terminally softened brain to get to grips with. It's been washed up out of the continuum. It's space-time jetsam. It doesn't matter what it is, we've got to catch it. It's our only way out of here. He scrambled rapidly down the rocky outcrop and made off across the field. Catch it, muttered Arthur, and then frowned in bemusement as he saw that the Chesterfield was lazily bobbing and wafting away across the grass. With a whoop of utterly unexpected delight, he leapt down the rock and plunged off in hectic pursuit of Ford Prefect and the irrational piece of furniture. 
They careered wildly through the grass, leaping, laughing and shouting instructions to each other to head the thing off this way or that way. The sun shone dreamily on the swaying grass. Tiny field animals scattered crazily in their wake. Arthur felt happy. He was terribly pleased that the day was, for once, working out so much according to plan. Only twenty minutes ago he had decided he would go mad. And now here he was, already chasing a sofa across the fields of prehistoric earth. The sofa bobbed this way and that, and seemed simultaneously to be as solid as the trees it drifted past, and as hazy as a billowing dream as it floated like a ghost through others. Ford and Arthur pounded chaotically after it, but it dodged and weaved as if following its own complex mathematical topography, which it was. Still they pursued, still it danced and spun, and suddenly turned and dipped as if crossing the lip of a, catas of a, cat of a catastrophe graph, and they were practically on top of it. With a heave and a shout, they leapt on it. The sun winked out. They fell through a sickening nothingness, and emerged unexpectedly, in the middle of the pitch at Lord's Cricket Ground, St. John's Wood, London, towards the end of the last test match of the Australian series in the year 19-whatever, with England needing only 28 runs to win. And there we will leave it for tonight. Um, thank you very much, as always, for your company, lovely people. Um, we will have the next episode on uh, Sunday next weekend. Uh, I hope to see you then for that. Um, yeah, thanks very much for this evening. I have asked, uh, there's a poll, I don't know if anyone saw it, um, but perhaps in the comments if you were, are interested in having maybe a second uh, episode um, a week, um, then let me know, we'll do that. If not, um, we'll just keep to the, the current weekly procedure. And I'd be interested to have your thoughts on whether we should continue um, during the summer holidays um, uh, as well. Um, uh, we've got a lot of space to go, a lot of time to get through, a lot of of content to get through. We are in book three of five, so that's pretty good. Um, but uh, it's going to take some time to get through all this. So uh, I'm I'm up for it. I'm happy to do the readings, but uh, I just want to find out what sort of suits how how this suits everybody else. Uh, um, but as I say, uh, in the coming days, I will be releasing. This is episode twelve that I've done so far. I will be releasing all of. There are five currently on the podcast versions uh, on uh, Apple and Spotify and other uh, uh, podcast uh, distributors. Um, so there are five up already. I will be editing the other seven uh, and releasing those as soon as possible. And then the aim will be going forwards to have. Uh, the podcast version published within a couple of days of the live version as well. So we, we're doing it concurrent, concurrently so everyone can catch up on the podcast or uh, on Facebook. But thank you very much for your time, everybody. Have a super rest of the Whitson of the Pincer holiday. Um, and I'll see you next Sunday. Take care of yourselves, guys. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs>